Good morning to you all. Uh, there is something else we want to do this morning, but I suddenly realized uh, for the same reasons we didn't have all the baptisms on live stream last Sunday, we better not do it now. We have a whole pile of gifts and certificates for all those who were baptized. If you were here last Sunday or watched on live stream, there were in total seven people who were baptized, and that was a, was a tremendous day. And I suddenly thought if we bring uh, our overseas friends up to receive their gift, that would be on live stream. That's probably not the wisest idea. So if you were baptized last Sunday, would you please come and see me immediately after the service up the front here? We do have a gift and a baptism certificate for you. Having said that, would you take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts again? Acts chapter 26. And I'm going to invite you to stand and give attention to the reading of God's holy word from the book of Acts in chapter 26, and we'll read the whole chapter together. Acts 26, and beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, Now Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul extended his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Regarding all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently, so that all Jews know my way of life since my youth, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and in Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. For this hope, O King, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people If God raises the dead. So I thought to myself that I had to act in strong opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons after receiving authority from the chief priests, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being put to death. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was extremely enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While I was so engaged, as I was journeying into Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who were journeying with me. And we all, sorry, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this, sorry, for this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness, not only to the things in which you have seen me, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. For that reason, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but continually proclaimed to those in Damascus first and in Jerusalem and then all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they are to repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance. For these reasons, For these reasons, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to murder me. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, as to whether the Christ was to suffer, and whether, as first from the resurrection of the dead, he would proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles." While Paul was stating these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. But Paul said, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I am speaking out with truthful and rational words. For the king knows about these matters, and I also speak to him with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Gripper replied to Paul, In a short time you are going to persuade me to make a Christian of myself. And Paul said, I would wish to God that even in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, would become such as I myself am, except for these chains. The king stood up, and and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, And when they had gone out, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything deserving death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thus far is the reading of God's word. Loving Father in heaven again, as we would open the scriptures and we would look into them, Father, we pray. We cry out to you, O God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to every single one of us. Father, you know where we stand before you. You know, O God, those who have been walking faithfully, living the new life in Christ in repentance and faith. Father, we pray for those that you would encourage them and strengthen them, spur them on to keep going. Father, for those who have believed but not repented, Father, we pray that you would bring the reality of their situation home to bear to each one of them. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would speak and that we would have ears and minds to hear what you would say to us. Father, for those in this room who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, Father, we pray that your Spirit would minister to them. Open their eyes. Father, we pray that you would make them alive in Christ, that they would hear the message of the gospel, they would believe and be saved. And Lord, we ask you for all these things. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Please have a seat. If you were here last Sunday, you will remember that we considered Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, and the reasons why all who believe in Christ for salvation must not continue living in consistent sin so that grace may increase. The reasons being that we have died to sin. We are now new creatures in Christ. Our old human nature was crucified with Christ so that our body of sin might be done away with as God's work of sanctification in us continues to the end. So it's unthinkable 
that we should continue living in consistent sin. Of course, we all slip and fall at times. The issue is, is it consistent? Are we just carrying on blindly committing sin with no hesitation, no remorse? And I gave three points for how we as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ might live that new life in Christ. First, we must know the truth because the truth will set us free. He, Paul mentioned repeatedly knowing the truth in that passage. Secondly, we must not let sin reign in our mortal body. And thirdly, we are to not continue presenting the members of our body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, to which I could have and I should have added a fourth one. And that came right out of the text. Present yourselves and the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. Somebody very kindly told me afterwards, I should have just kept going. There was so much to say. And indeed, there was much more to say. But then in God's sovereign providence, as I opened the text for this week and began to work my way through it, I suddenly realized we had a great illustration of all the truths that are being described back in Romans chapter 6. It's it's an illustration for living the new life in Christ as dead to sin and alive to God as a life of repentance. Now I want to say and repeat what I said last Sunday. The work of sanctification in us, being set apart as holy, is God's work in us with which we obediently cooperate in the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, one of my many and a long list of favorite verses. This one is up high to the top. They say say this, as Paul speaking, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as we hear or we read or we meditate on Scripture, God works in us, creating desires in our hearts for godly, righteous, Christ-like behavior, putting away sin and putting on the new man. Behavior that pleases him. We submit to God's word and will. It's at work in us. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we obey those desires that he implants in us. We put an end to sinful habits and responses and actions. We develop godly habits to replace those sinful ones. We cooperate with God in submission and obedience to him. It's it's similar, I said last week and I'll say it again, to how 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7 work. Uh, Paul says that how he plants and Apollos waters, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants or waters is anything, but God causes the growth. It's the same cooperative action in our sanctification. As we obey in the power of the Spirit of God, God is at work in us to make us more like Christ. Well, that was Romans 6. Meanwhile, back in Acts 26, you remember what's happened up to this point. In chapter 21, we have Paul's arrival in Jerusalem and his arrest in the temple by the Jews who assume he's brought Gentiles in with him. Paul is rescued from the Jews, beating him up by the Romans who come to save him. In chapter 22, we have Paul's defense before a Jewish mob. In chapter 23, we have Paul's trial before a Jewish council. In chapter 24, we have Paul's trial before Felix, after which 
he's left in jail for two years without a conviction. And then in chapter 25, we have his trial before Festus, after which Paul, who knows well his Roman citizenship rights, he appeals to Caesar. But before he's sent to Rome, Agrippa and Bernice arrive, and they're given an opportunity in chapter 26 to hear Paul's defense and proclamation of the gospel. If you look at our passage, you can kind of see an outline forms. In verses 1 to 3, we have an introduction to Paul's defense. In verses 4 through 8, we have Paul's life in Judaism. In verses 9 to 11, we have Paul's opposition to Jesus. Then 12 to 14 is Paul's confrontation by Jesus. And then in verses 14 to 18 is Paul's commission by Jesus into the ministry. And verses 19 to 23, we have Paul's ministry for Jesus. And finally, we have in the last couple of verses, uh, the response of his listeners. But woven through the content of Paul's words, we have the Spirit's intention to display Paul's transformation by God. From, Paul, sorry, from Saul, the devout Pharisee and violent persecutor, to Paul, the faithful apostle. Christ's confrontation and his conversion of Saul led to Paul living the new life in Christ, and that life was a life of repentance, which, of course, matches his message and his witness for Christ. So then, of course, the question is, that's great, that's history, that's, that's a wonderful story. What about us? Well, what's the message from the text of Scripture for us? And the message is that we who have been converted by Christ must, like Paul, live that new life in Christ with repentance. And we'll see that spelled out in detail towards the end. As we dive into the text, I want you to notice something else that kind of just occurred to me as I was studying away, the similarity of Paul and Agrippa. They're both very well-versed in the culture, traditions, scriptures, and laws of the Jews. Paul is a Jew and a Pharisee, and Agrippa, as Paul describes him in both verse 3 and verse 27, he was well-versed. He understood, he even believed the Old Testament prophets. Paul's life had begun in the heights of Jewish academic Pharisaic society, but his conversion to Christ had brought him to arrest chains, accusations, and even murder attempts by his fellow Jews. Agrippa's life had begun and continued in the powerful social political world of Roman politics, yet both Paul and Agrippa, I'm sure, knew deep down that Paul's path was the better one. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. We'll see that more to the end. Paul's life in Judaism, we can see it, first of all, in verses 4 through 8. In verses 4 and 5, he mentions his beginning in Judaism as a Pharisee. They were the strictest sect, separated to legal observance. There was much truth in what the Pharisees taught, but their system of religion was all form and no substance. The Pharisees were noted for hypocrisy, commanding strict legal observance, despite a very lax personal morality. They were noted for self-righteousness and pride, and they were frequently rebuked by Jesus himself. Yet Paul, as late as Acts 23 and verse 6, still describes himself as a Pharisee. In verses 6 through 8, he describes his present state as on trial for the hope of God's messianic promise to the fathers, the hope of the resurrection of the dead. 
And I want you to notice how clear Paul makes it clear throughout his defense, he is not following some new distortion or deviation away from the Old Testament scriptures of Moses and the prophets, away from the one true God of Israel. He hasn't wandered away from the hope of Israel or from the hope of the resurrection. In fact, everything he does and believes is consistent with the Old Testament teachings which the Jews themselves believed. He's on trial for living by faith and repentance before God for the hope of the resurrection from the dead. But how did he get there? He didn't start there. How did he get there? Why are the Jews so angry and seeking to kill him? It's because, unlike the Jews, he has been turned to God in repentance to follow Jesus the Christ. But it wasn't always that way. Paul, the faithful apostle that we're used to reading about in the book of Acts, began as Saul, the devout Pharisee. Secondly, we see his opposition to Jesus in verses 9 to 11. Saul, the devout Pharisee, is also Saul, the violent persecutor. Having not yet experienced God's grace, but clearly having heard much about Jesus, the Nazarene, Saul resolved to do much hostility towards Jesus. To him, Jesus was merely an imposter, claiming to be God, but clearly not. The Messiah they expected was going to come in in great power and glory and drive out the Romans and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And this Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, had come in and been taken by the Romans and crucified. It's not what they were expecting at all. And so Paul, sorry, Saul by the way, in case you're not familiar with it, when I say Saul, Paul, the same guy. Saul is his pre-conversion life, and Paul is his later life as apostle. So if you hear the two names, they're talking about the same person. Just cover that off quickly. So Saul vents his anger at the Jesus followers. In verse 10, he locked up many in prison. He cast his vote against them to put them to death. In verse 11, he punished them, likely meaning he was uh, instrumental in having them whipped before the synagogue. The synagogue law allowed them to put a man down on his face and whip him up to 39 times on his back with a rod. In verse 11 and 12, he pursued them to many cities. And you can see the extent of his anger. He talks about being an enraged, extremely enraged against them. There is a religious fervor and a zeal boiling up in this man. i got to remember something here. Think about who he's talking to. Herod Agrippa II. The Herodian kings in the New Testament history had a long history with those faithful to God. In Matthew 2, verse 16, Agrippa's great-grandfather, Herod the Great, attempted to destroy the infant Jesus, but had failed and died subsequently a very horrible and painful death. In Matthew 14, Agrippa's great-uncle, Herod Antipas, imprisoned John the Baptist for preaching repentance, of all things, against Herod's unlawful marriage to his sister-in-law. He later received Jesus during his trials, and although he asked him lots of questions, Jesus stood there and would not answer him. In Acts 12, Agrippa's father, Agrippa I, had ordered the apostle James's beheading and then ordered Peter's arrest and execution, but God had miraculously delivered Peter, and Agrippa I had also died a very horrible, painful death. Now Agrippa II is sitting here listening to Paul telling a story of aggression and persecution against Jesus, but with an altogether different ending. 
because God had a plan for this, his most violent opponent. God could have crushed Saul and put him out of commission like he did with the Herod Agrippas and those other men. But God in super abundant grace and mercy had converted Saul, the violent persecutor, into Paul, his faithful apostle. Now, I just put, just as I was standing here reading and thinking and, and preaching, it occurred to me, here's Paul down there. He, he raises his hands to speak, and you hear clatter, 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 clank as he did. And every time he moved his hands as he's preached, you would have heard the clattering of chains as they hung from his wrists. He is standing there in probably the worst possible position with a man who is connected to other family members known for a depraved cruelty against God's men. And yet he fearlessly and boldly proclaims the gospel to this man. What would our response have been? I wonder if we were in Paul's shoes, what would we have said? Would we have toned down our message a little bit? Would we have backed off? In fact, if you understand the, the laws and the culture of the day, at the very end when, when uh, Festus says, you're out of your mind, you're insane, and Paul answers him and then turns and he literally fires the question back to the judge. It doesn't work that way in legal courts. The judges ask the questions, the accused do the answering, but Paul swings it around and he becomes the judge and he becomes the prosecutor and he puts Agrippa on the spot. I know you believe. And you can almost imagine the, the <gasps> amongst all those others gathered there as they watched this man in chains basically putting it back on his judge about what he will do with the message. Uh, but again, I'm getting ahead of myself. God in superabundant grace and mercy converted Saul, the violent persecutor, into Paul, his faithful apostle. We see it thirdly as Paul's conversion by Jesus happens as recounted in verses 12 to 14. In verse 12, while engaged in persecution of Jesus' followers, Jesus himself intervenes and confronts Saul. And Paul says in verse 13 that he saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. I can't imagine what it must have been like in that moment. All his plans, all his zeal, all his fervor for the Lord. Because he, feared, he believed he was serving God. In my mind, I don't know why it is. I think it's an old uh, kid's cartoon Bible thing I used to read. Uh, Paul was, Saul was on a horse and he's running along. And he's got a spear in one hand and he's just, he's on a mission. He's going, he's going to get these followers of Jesus. And all of a sudden the heavens open and he sees a great light and everything changes. Saul finds himself down on the ground and I have a feeling, just like Isaiah back in the temple, when the, he saw the glory of the Lord, Paul's hands were up over his head, and he was curling up. If that wasn't enough, and it was, he hears a voice speaking to him, Saul, Saul. Martin Lloyd-Jones preaches a great message on those two words, as only Martin Lloyd-Jones can do, preaching a whole hour-long sermon on two words. He identifies him very clearly. Saul, you, why are you persecuting me? I wonder what went through his brain. He's a Pharisee. He's, a, he's like a, a brilliant legal mind. Scholars would say that Saul of Tarsus was one of the most brilliant men of his whole age. 
And there he is, all of a sudden, a reality of what had been happening. He has been persecuting these Christians, these followers of the way. And all of a sudden, this voice out of heaven speaking Hebrew. That's a very interesting thing that he does. Why doesn't he speak Aramaic as he did while he was on earth? He spoke Hebrew to clearly identify himself with the God of the Old Testament. So all of a sudden, Paul is there, and I can think as he's in that moment... He's thinking to himself, men like Isaiah have been here before me. Men like Ezekiel have been here before me in this moment. And he hears that voice speaking. Jesus had intervened and confronted and converted this man Saul, the violent persecutor, to become Paul, the faithful apostle. Before I go any further, I got to ask the question Have you seen the light? I remember the day, I know I refer to it often, pardon me, but I remember the day sitting on that camp bunk, and it made sense. It had made sense for months. I got the point of the gospel, but all of a sudden it was like I understood it to a whole new level and a whole new degree. I saw the light, and I heard the voice calling my name. My friends sitting here this morning, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? The light is shining and He is calling your name. Will you answer? I want you to notice that Paul's account of his conversion contains no verbal confession of sin, no seeking of forgiveness, no spoken dedication to Christ as Lord and Savior. We simply see that where once he had been a violent persecutor against Jesus, now he's in total submission to Jesus. The reality of Paul's conversion, his faith and repentance is not in spoken words recorded, but in his obedience, his preaching, his suffering, and ultimately his death for Christ and the gospel. The question for us is this morning, if we've heard the gospel, how have we responded? You know how Paul responded? Acts chapter 9 tells us, a couple days later, after he had been ministered to by Ananias, he immediately got up, he went to the synagogues, and he began pre- preaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He kept proving to the Jews there that this is the one they had been looking for. Everything had changed for him. He didn't keep it hidden in a back corner. He didn't take a couple years to think about it. He immediately got up and began to tell everybody, the one that I was persecuting, he's Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God who came to save sinners. His life was changed. Beloved, if we've heard the gospel of Christ, how have we responded? The words of our response are, of course, important. But I'll add this, so much more so is the life we live in repentance and faith. Because our mouths can say all sorts of things, but our lives show where we're really at before the Lord. We can come into a church service and we can lift up our hearts and our voices. We can raise our hands and sing with great gusto all the hymns. And inside is filth and rottenness. And our life will display it. No, there weren't words spoken in that encounter by Paul. Not very many. But his life was radically different. We see, fourthly, Paul's commission by Jesus in verses 14 to 18 
In verse 16, he appeared to Saul with two purposes. First, he appointed Paul a servant and a witness to what he had seen and promised further appearances to show him more that he'd witnessed to. And in verse 17, he promised to rescue Paul from the Jews and the Gentiles. Interesting he's telling that, eh? And the Lord told me he'd rescue me from people like you. <laughs> That's essentially what he's saying to Agrippa. The very ones to whom he was being sent, God would deliver him. Secondly, he sent Paul with a purpose to open the eyes of Jews and Gentiles. And this ministry had its own purpose so his listeners may turn from darkness to light, may be delivered from Satan's dominion to God's, that they may receive forgiveness and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in God. In other words, that his listeners may become added to God's kingdom to God's household and God's family. That was Saul, Paul's commission by Jesus. So how would Paul respond? How did he respond? And the simple answer is he obeyed his master. To, to link Romans 6 to this. He was no longer the violent persecutor. He was now a servant and a minister for his Lord. He was no longer a slave to sin, to obey its lust. He was now a slave to righteousness, to obey God. And so he obeyed his Savior and his Lord for the rest of his life. And we see Paul's ministry fifthly in verses 19 to 23. Saul obeyed Jesus' commission. He did not prove disobedient. In fact, in Acts 9, 20 and 22, I mentioned a moment ago, immediately Saul began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Paul's faith in Christ was displayed by his active repentance. From persecuting Christ to preaching Christ. From persecuting the church to fellowship in the church. And it was not just a short-lived temporary ministry. In verse 20, Paul continually proclaimed the good news of Christ to those in Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, to Gentiles. He was even then, if you realize what he's doing, he's even then using this opportunity to testify to Jesus as exactly what the prophets and Moses said was going to happen. Once again, Luke makes the point in his account that Paul is not following some new deviation away from what the Old Testament prophets and Moses had foretold. Paul's life and conversion and ministry were all entirely consistent with the hope of the Jews' fathers, the hope of the resurrection from death. And we see in Paul's witness, it gives us both his message and the response that he and we should be calling for. The message is this. In verse 23, we see that Jesus Christ has suffered The reality is he has died on the cross for your sin and for mine, paying the penalty for our sin. He died to sin, to break its power over us. He died, and the believer's old nature was crucified with Christ. It's no more. He truly died. People try and prove that Jesus just swooned or fainted or maybe lost consciousness for a moment, and they pulled him off the cross. I can assure you, when they began to pull the nails out of his wrists and his ankles, if he had been just unconscious, that pain would have snapped him back to consciousness immediately. He died. 
He truly died as a soldier proved it through his spear thrust into Jesus' side, exposing blood and water. Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. His body, cold and still and lifeless, was in the grave. His spirit, commended to God before he died, was in paradise. At death, Jesus did not cease to exist. Could you imagine that moment? There's the thief on the cross. We don't know when he died, but let's assume he died a little earlier. And he looks up, and there comes Jesus. What a reunion they must have had in glory. What a reunion they must have had with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all those that had gone on before. In verse 23, Paul says that Jesus was the first to truly rise from the dead exactly as he had foretold to his disciples. We were chatting down here in the front this morning about the comparison between the Muslim faith and the Christian faith. And Jesus is the only man in history who repeatedly before his death predicted accurately that he would go to Jerusalem. He would be delivered to the chief priests and the Jews. The Romans would take him and crucify him. He'd put in a borrowed tomb and he'd rise three days again, three days after that burial. It happened exactly as he predicted. He was the first to rise from the dead, proving his deity as the Son of God, the Word who is God, proving his sinlessness for our justification, proving his power over death and hell and the grave, ensuring and guaranteeing our hope that by faith in him, we will also have the resurrection from the dead. What a great hope, beloved, as we face death, as we face the, the issues of dying and the pain of it. I read, not read, sorry, listened through uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the last part of the first part, which is where uh, faithful and Christian die. And he speaks about them crossing the river, which is death, and the sorrows and struggles that the Christian has as the waves sort of knock him about. He's crossing over from life to death in that allegory. And I was thinking about this. What a great hope. The next part of the story starts in Christiana. Christian's wife looks and she remembers what's happened to her husband and she, does, has, she has no worry about whether she'll see him or not. She knows for a certainty she's going to see him again. And all of us who have watched loved ones going on ahead of us, we know for an absolute certainty we're going to see them again. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. We have that hope of the resurrection because our Savior rose again. But it doesn't finish there. Jesus, in verse 23, proclaimed good news to Jew and Gentile. He had proclaimed it to the Jews, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He'd already proclaimed it to his disciples back in the Gospels. And now through these disciples and Paul, he was continuing his work to take the Gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That was his message. And wouldn't we like to just shut the book and call it a day, close in prayer and go home? Doesn't work that way. There was also a response. Jews and Gentiles hearing it cannot simply ignore it. Paul called them to response, and it's so interesting the way he writes it. He doesn't mention faith here. I thought, that's so, why not? Why didn't you talk about belief? No, he talked very specifically about repentance, turning to God, and performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, I would take his words, turning to God, as an action of faith. But his emphasis is on repentance, which is why I'm convinced that the message from us, from this text, is about how we live new lives in Christ with repentance. 
We hear the gospel preached, and it's heavily emphasized faith, belief, which is right and good. But the problem is the true gospel message must have both faith and repentance. You know how we know that? When Jesus began to preach the gospel, what did he say? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What? Repent and believe the gospel. It's critical. The message calls for a response of repentance. Paul had been converted from a devout Pharisee and a violent persecutor to a faithful, repentant apostle, proclaiming the gospel to living the new life in Christ with repentance. And beloved, listen. This is the message of the text for us. This is what God is saying to you and I for today. We who have been converted by Christ must, like Paul, live the new life in Christ with repentance. Of course, coming to saving faith in Christ includes repentance. Of course, faith in God is absolutely necessary for salvation. The Bible says in Acts 16 and verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Great verse. We love it. And we should. Ephesians 2 verse 8, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. But repentance is also absolutely necessary for salvation. In Isaiah 30 and verse 15, Isaiah says, The Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. In Luke 13, verse 3 and verse 5, Jesus repeats it one verse and then the same words again two verses later. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Take the idea of perishing and put it back to John 3, 16. You know what we have? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So believing results in not perishing. Equally so, repentance revolves in, results in not perishing. So faith in God and repentance of sin are like two sides of the same salvation coin. By faith, we repent of sin. And in repentance, we trust in God to save us. If we like to use the old illustration of just turning around and turning from sin and turning to God, we're turning to God in hope and faith that he will accept us as we repent. They go together. You cannot separate them. Tragically, we were in a little church for a short time that firmly believed that repentance had nothing to do with salvation. I didn't know that until I preached a sermon on why repentance was necessary for salvation. And then I found out afterwards when one of the elders came to talk to me that that wasn't what they believed. And I was shocked. Repentance is absolutely necessary. The genuine evidence of saving faith is not so much our words, but the faith and the obedience and the repentance with which we live. I said before, I said again, our mouths say lots of things, but our lives display the truth. Remember Romans 6? How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? He's talking about repentance. 
How old man was crucified with Christ. We've been given a new nature. We are new creatures in Christ. We, like Saul and Paul, are free in Christ to live lives of repentance, repentance and obedience to Christ in slavery to righteousness that pleases God, which is exactly how Paul explained his life beyond the vision. Beloved, as we close, I want to consider what repentance truly is. Because there may be some misunderstanding. Repentance is our willful turning from sin and turning toward Christ in true sorrow and humility. When was the last time that we wept and grieved over our sin? The Bible says in Psalm 51 and verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, the Bible says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. And there you have repentance followed by salvation. Repentance is God's gift to us for salvation. In Acts chapter 11, when the Jewish believers heard Peter's explanation of the Gentiles' conversion, they all quieted down and they glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Brothers and sisters, repentance is only possible through a work of the Holy Spirit. There is, in my anybody here has a Reformation study Bible, and you look under the passage in Acts 26, there is a little square theology article right there about repentance. I just caught two of the words, and I didn't actually read it very closely. And one of the two things they said was there is a repentance of attrition and a repentance of contrition. Attrition feels bad for your sin. I just agree. It makes me feel bad. But contrition is totally different. It's a full change of heart and mind and will and towards, sorry, away from sin and towards God. It's easy for us to be sorrowful and remorseful over our sin. We see what sin has done to us. We see how sin destroys our life and the lives of so many around us. We see what sin does in the world. We look in the newspapers. You watch the the movies, the TVs. I'm watching the news the other day, seeing all this stuff, the, the woke stuff and the crazy, crazy things going on in our world. And you just kind of almost breaks your heart. And you see what sin has done throughout all the world. And you can feel bad about it. But real Repentance is a sorrow that changes the heart and the mind. It desires to leave sin behind and pursue God with all our hearts. Repentance is only possible through a work of the Holy Spirit who gives to us a greater affection for God than for our sin. When I was a smoker, confessing all my sins in public, uh, many years ago when I was a smoker, I was struggling with quitting. And my friend, who was not a Christian, and uh, I believe much in God, but not a, a Christian, looked at me one day and he said, you will never quit that until you want to stop more than you want to keep going. I thought, you know, that's, that's true. And he was absolutely right. Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit that gives us a greater affection for God than for our sin. We say we love God, but beloved, do we hate our sin? I think for some of us, 
we're playing the stretch game. We've got God in one hand, and we're stretching as far as we can the other way to hang on to that, those favorite sins and somehow just kind of bring them along with us, right? It's a work of the Holy Spirit to give us a greater affection, a greater desire, a greater love for God than for our sin, and in fact, give us a hatred for our sin. Repentance is closely associated with the Holy Spirit's work in making us alive and giving us the faith to believe. True biblical repentance is more than merely remorse over sin. It's a lifelong process that begins at our conversion and continues all through this life of faith in God. Colossians 3 describes a life of repentance as putting off sin, considering the members of our earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, because we are now dead to sin and we are forever alive to God through Christ. It's changed. The greatest news of the gospel is if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. I was sharing with somebody afterwards, and most of you probably heard this story about Augustine walking down the street. He was quite the ladies' man, apparently. This is one of the greatest writers of Christian literature in history. And, he, and one of his girlfriends hollered out, Woohoo, Augustine, it's me. And he called back over his shoulder, Yeah, but it's not me anymore, and kept walking. He got it. He was a new creature. A life of repentance is to put away anger, wrath, malice, abusive speech. It's no longer to lie, cheat, and steal because we are new creatures in Christ, living by faith and in repentance. The life of repentance is to live the new life in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's only possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, last week in those baptisms, I went down in the tank with those guys in that very, 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 very cold water. And we stood there. And quivering lips, somewhat because of the cold, somewhat because of the questions we were asking. I asked several questions, very important ones. This morning, I want us all to answer before God, not, not out loud. So listen. Are you trusting, am I? trusting in Jesus to be my Savior? Are you in the power of the Holy Spirit living in repentance? Are you making the willful decision to turn from sin and turn towards God? Are you grieving and sorrowing over your sin, knowing the offense it causes God and its corrosive impact on your life? And are you in the power of the Holy Spirit, performing deeds appropriate to repentance? And in your own heart, as you consider those questions, you know the answer and God does too. But the wonderful thing, the wonderful thing about the Christian faith is there is forgiveness. There is restitution. There is restoration. Sorry, I meant to say. There is God reestablishing that sweet fellowship that we once had with him if we would confess our sin and put it away. I'm not talking primarily to those who don't know Christ. I'm talking to those who do know Christ. This is for us. Too often I think we treat our conversion as a massive rubber stamp. Saved. 
all good. And we just carry on living as if nothing's changed. But the simple reality is the moment you came to Christ, they issued a death certificate that said that old guy's gone. And they issued a new birth certificate that said there's a new one born in this place. But that life that we are called to live, brothers and sisters, is a life of repentance the whole way through. How are we responding? How are we still responding to the message of the gospel? Well, in the last couple of verses, we have Paul's hearers responding to his message. They've sat there listening patiently to Paul's defense and finally Festus. And I'm almost convinced that there was a sense of self-defense and self-righteousness. And he shouts out because one of the things that they'll try and do, they want to do, is to silence the gospel. And if we can bring a bad reputation to the speaker, we can get away with the power of the message, right? You're insane. You're out of your mind. That's a powerful statement. Because if he can prove through assertion or whatever means that Paul's out of his mind, Paul's insane, then everything he said can be disregarded and thrown away. You're out of your mind. So what does Paul do? He says, no, no, I'm not. He turns quickly and he brings the point of his message to the one sitting possibly on a higher chair, Agrippa. And Paul appeals to what he knows. Agrippa believes to be true the scriptures of the prophets in the Old Testament. And herein lies an important point for us, brothers and sisters. Merely knowing the scriptures are true and intellectually believing their message is not, it never can be, the sum total of our Christian faith. Do you believe, prophets? I know you do. And you can see Agrippa sitting there. And I've read that statement of Agrippa's. What does he say? In a short time, you are going to persuade me to make a Christian. I read that as a question. Are you going to persuade me? I don't think it's a question at all. I think it's a statement. I think Agrippa, in that moment when the, 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 the echo of Paul's voice ringing off the walls, and he looks down, and every, everybody else is kind of faded out of view, and it's just the two of them, and Agrippa's looking down at Paul in the chains. In a moment of complete honesty, he's saying, in a short time, you're going to persuade me. This conviction of sin has gripped his soul. He knows where he stands before God. He knows the prophets are true. He knows what Paul is saying is true. And he stands up and walks out of the room. And he resists, pushes back. Little more is known about Agrippa. We know roughly that he was sent to Gaul, uh, exiled to Gaul on charges of conspiracy against the emperor, and his Bernice went with him, and that's all we know about him. Did he ever believe the message? I wonder how many times in the rest of his life he thought back over those moments as that little, short, stooped, scarred Jewish man filled with the Spirit of God preached the message to him, and he heard it. And he knew it was true. And we don't know how he responded. Brother and sister this morning, beloved, all of us, how are you responding to the message? Is it with faith and repentance? 
What sin have we tucked away in our back pocket for just such a moment to pull out and enjoy? It will hinder and bind our fellowship with God. Yes, as believers, as born again, we have that relationship. But as long as we keep sin, it will tear us apart and we'll be the most miserable people I remember as a young man tolerating and holding on to certain sin I didn't want to get rid of, showing up to church, still somewhat hungover from the night before in my suit and tie and my King James Bible, thinking nobody would know. Well, God knew. And I was the most unhappy person you could meet because I knew I was letting sin go unchecked, unconfessed, and unforsaken. So Christian, this morning, believer, if that's your situation, I plead with you, put it away. Cry out to God for forgiveness and put it away. For those who don't know Jesus, there is hope, there is salvation, there's life in Christ for you. If you hear that voice in your heart that's longing To be made right with God, I plead with you, respond. Trust the Lord and turn away from your sin. And you'll know that peace within. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing uh, one more hymn before we uh, remember the Lord together. Would you stand with me to pray and then you'll stay standing to, to sing. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, again this morning we thank you and we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the one who was willing to come to walk this earth, a mere man, but truly God and truly man, knowing all of the the, uh, frailties of manhood, weakness, tiredness, hunger, pain. Father, knowing the pain in reality as they nailed him to a cross, knowing the pain in reality as he was scourged and a crown of thorns was pushed down on his brow, and knowing as the Son of God the unspeakable pain of being forsaken by his Father for those hours to endure the full wrath of a just and a holy God against all our sin. Father, we thank you and we praise you for him. Father, for the one standing here this morning, the believer who has allowed sin to gain a foothold, he is tolerating it in his life. Father, we cry out to you for them, that they would, in repentance and confession of sin, know what it is to be restored to that sweet fellowship they once had. Father, for the one that's here this morning, one, two, three, twenty even, Lord, that do not know Jesus as Savior. Father, we cry out to you for them, that they would turn, they would respond to that voice they hear in their hearts, calling them. They would confess their sins, seek forgiveness, trust in you, and turn away from that sin and be saved. Lord, we ask you for all these things. We cry out to you, O God, for a work of your Holy Spirit in all of us, Father, it's a message we all need to hear, myself included, O God. 
And Father, we pray that you would do your work in us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.